Hey, what's up, Resonate Church? So good to see all of you here today. Hey, we want to welcome our family in Hayward, too. We love you. So glad that you're joining us. You're part of our family. Also, who are part of our family are the online families that are out there. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Um, thanks for just being a part of uh, our worship services. We are going through a real pivotal summer series called Free Indeed. We've been talking about things that have been enslaving us, uh, things from the past to things that we're experiencing now. We've had trouble in just freeing ourselves, being liberated from them. And so today we're, we're talking about another subject that we are enslaved to, and, and Harvard Research recently did this in 2020, a research that indicated that 44% of the population of the world are plagued by this. 44%. Now, what could that be? I mean, the majority, I mean, a significant portion of the population is struggling um, that it, it would impact them uh, socially, emotionally, and even spiritually. And it's something that you might not recognize within yourself or even maybe perhaps wouldn't want to admit, and that is loneliness, loneliness. And initially, you might say, well, I'm not that lonely, you know, because I have social media. You know, I'm not that lonely because I live with a family. I live, I'm not that lonely because I have a roommate. I'm not that lonely because I have a, a, a wife or a husband. I'm married. Um, and you could still be lonely in great ways. In fact, you know, let's not confuse the idea of isolation versus loneliness because isolation is the physical reality, uh, objective reality of you being apart from physical presence of people. But loneliness is the subjective feeling of us not having meaningful relationships where we could be vulnerable to. Now, when we think in those terms, then you and I have lots of secrets or maybe even things that we don't want it to be a secret, but we don't have very many people to talk about them. And this is why we're married to our phones. You know, phones, when we get them out and when we look at them, you know, it's almost like a trigger for us. It's like an insecurity that constantly pops up when we don't have anything to say. We immediately, you know, shut off the presence of anybody else and we'll go to our phones. In fact, I was at a uh, restaurant recently with my family and I'm like, kids, look at that table. You know, I was just judging like crazy, but I'm like, look at that table. You know, like this family of four were all looking at their phones. They weren't talking. They were just like, they were nearsighted too. <laughs> and they're like, you know, like they're just looking at their phones. I'm like, man, like that's so weird. Don't you think that's odd rather that you're just interfacing with the phone rather than the people that are around you? And some of you binge watch. You know, there was a period in our time where, you know, after you watch a 30 minute show, that's it. You have to interact with people. But now we're like 30 minutes. 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes. And we binge watch shows so that we're, we're just, in some ways we're entertained, but in other ways we're distracting ourselves. And social media, we get on it and we think we're in the presence of other people's lives when we're not. Some of us turn into abuse and substance abuse and things of that nature. And loneliness has a way of alerting us that we need something. In fact, the book that I was reading about loneliness this week says loneliness is like hunger and thirst. Hunger indicates to us that we need food. Thirst indicates for us that we need drink. And loneliness indicates for us that we need meaningful, trusting relationships. And on top of that, you, you realize that God has made us into a communal human beings that thrive among other people. 
that we need a community. In fact, think about when God made the human. Think about the very first. Remember what he said? He said, let us make man in our image. Did you hear that? Did you hear the plural in that? Us, our image. God was talking to himself under the relationship of the Trinitarian dialogue, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were all talking and saying, let's make the human being like our image with the perfect relationship and love and harmony that we are experiencing. Let's make the human being need that so that they too will experience that. And so they said, let us make them in our image for it is not good for man to be alone. And so Therefore, you and I have been created for community. And when we look through the Bible, you'll see even in the Old Testament that we're made for community. Jesus himself being the perfect man, thinking he's all self-sufficient. No, he had 12 disciples that he rolled with, and they were all very different from him, right? They weren't all rabbis. They were fishermen and tax collectors. And even the very first church when it started in Acts 2, You know, they were devoted to two things. They were devoted to teaching of the word, of course. This is why we make teaching of the word central in what we do here at Resonate on Sunday. But also as essential as the teaching of the word is fellowship. Fellowship. It's that essential. In fact, Paul, in the writing of all of his epistles, would make sure that we would look through the lens of a corporate fellowship rather than the individual person. In that, you know how many times Paul says the word, my Lord, in all of his epistles, which Paul wrote most of the New Testament, right? You know how many times? Only once. But guess how many times he wrote, our Lord. Not once, not twice, but 53 times. So my Lord once, 53 times our Lord. As to say, Paul is writing the Bible to help us look through our life through a communal lens, not an individual lens. Then the question is, why do we struggle with loneliness? Why? Why are we so lonely? There are three reasons that I want to just go over with you real quick before we open God's word. First, we choose individualism over family. Our culture chooses individualism over family. Now, the prevailing Western cultural mindset is one of radical individualism where we believe that our family exists to empower the individual like me, opposed to the other way around, that you exist to empower the family. Rather, we think the family exists so that they can make our dreams come true. And that is the old American way. In fact, my dad was so against this, he would often tell me that, Ryan, you don't exist. Uh, I mean, we don't exist so that you could have your dreams come true. No, Uh, you exist for our family's win, not your personal win. And the way he did that is every, uh, on occasion, on a Saturday morning, he would wake us up at 5 a.m. He actually made up like a military song that he would sing to us in in the most treacherous and most nasty, awful way. And he would wake up my brother and I to clean the entire house. And we would first clean our stuff. And once we were done, I thought I could fall back asleep. But no, he's like, now you got to go to the living room and clean up all the other stuff. And I would protest and say, dad, that's not my stuff. That's James's stuff. He did that. I didn't do it. And what he would say is like, I know it's not your stuff, but it's the family stuff. And, And you exist for the family win. 
he was always say, Ryan, you, the only reason why you have your first name Ryan is because you had a last name first. I was like, oh, that makes sense, yeah. Last name first. That's how I'm the, the, a, a byproduct of the, the last name, Quan, right? In the same way, if you were a part of any sports growing up, you know, your coach most likely said something like, play for the name on the front of the jersey rather than the back, right? Because the last name goes on the back, the front name goes to the team. So play for the team, don't play individualistically, and this is re- one of the reasons why we're so lonely, because we are choosing individualism constantly. Secondly, we choose superficiality over depth. Superficiality, more true than ever. With the likeness of social media, Instagram, TikTok, and all the other, it's shaping our society. It gives us access to people's lives that we don't know, and it just makes it seem like we know them. And somehow when they're eating dinner and they post a picture, it seems like we're like at the table, but not. And somehow we feel connected without really having meaningful connection. I mean, I have 5,000 Facebook friends, which about 4,500 of them I don't really know. You know, I only have that so that I could spy on you. That's, that's really the only reason why I have it. But, you know, but it gives a semblance to this alter reality, alternate reality to say, oh, we're in each other's lives. But you know that what you post on Facebook, Instagram is most likely your highlight reels, not your low light reels. And so this is not who we are. This is not what you and I daily live. I don't eat steak every single day, even though most of my postings is about meat. Right? So on Fridays, I have two friends that come over and we have long, extended conversations starting with dinner. My family's involved in it. And, and I spend about six to eight hours literally on a Friday just sitting with them and talking to them. And the kind of things that we talk about will never be posted on Facebook. It's not because it's a secret, but it's just not sexy. But you know what it is? It's depth, it's vulnerability, it's acceptance. It's security. And those things drive us to depth. But social media and the things that we choose, we tend to choose things that are superficial. And that's why sociologists are saying, although we are more connected with more people than ever before, we are the most unknown and more lonely than any other generation in human history. And that's true. Third, we choose self-interest over communal interest. What our culture teaches, our culture solution to loneliness is the constant pursuit of self-interest. It always says, pursue your self-interest. Don't mind your family. Don't mind other people. Don't mind the community. Do what you want to do. Define yourself as any way you want because you have the first say and the last say. And as you define yourself, find community that will ratify and affirm that only. And then you create an echo chamber. Once you're tired of that identity, go on, go on and move away from that. Then find new friends. Ditch your old friends. Find new community that will affirm you. And that's how you uh, find solution to loneliness. But the question is, does that work? Does that work? You know, I was reading that psychologist, a book on loneliness, uh, and John Cassiopo, the great psychologist, um, did a 10-year study with 229 people. And basically, he created two scales that he wanted to evaluate, a loneliness scale and a self-interest scale. 
And he wanted to see what kind of corollary and relationship that they had of each other. And what he found is that the more self-interested you are of yourself, the more, more lonelier you got. Isn't that interesting? But yet, when you're invested in others, you are less lonely. And though that seems so intuitive and makes sense to us all, the reality is that the culture continues to teach us to invest in yourself, invest in yourself only, define yourself only, and we're the loneliest generation on the face of the planet in the history of this world. And so the powerful forces of individualism, superficiality, and self-interest have contributed to our drastic feelings of loneliness. But listen, God has designed you for a family. In fact, John 13, verse 34, it says, a new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you, that you are to love one another. You see, this is fascinating. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, did you catch it? He says, a new commandment I give to you. You are to love one another. You're like, that doesn't sound like a new commandment. I mean, all the Bible says love one another, love one another, right? Leviticus chapter 19 will say, you know, you are to love one another as, as your neighbor as yourself. So that's not a new commandment. And Jesus says, oh, no, this is the new commandment. Ready? Love one another. That's not new, but I'm going to give you the new as I have loved you myself. That's the new you see, he's not just giving you a model how to love. He's giving you a means and a power to love. He's not just giving you an example how to love the way I loved you. He's like, because I've loved you, because now you have the utter security forever and ever, though you're not deserving or were worthy of that kind of love, I've given it to you. Now you know how to love other people. So I'm not giving you an example. I'm also giving you an empowerment. This, does that make sense? So he is giving us an old direction with a brand new dynamic of how to love one another. He's saying, man, I just didn't give you this example. Now I'm gonna empower you to do this. And I'm gonna help you live this out among your brothers and sisters. And so this is the challenge for us today, not only to eradicate loneliness in the midst of us, but also to become a church that love each other in the way that Jesus has loved us. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you please turn to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, um, we're going to start reading from verse 9, and we'll read to verse 13. And if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And I'll pray once again that the Holy Spirit preach a better sermon than the one that you're about to hear from me today. Romans 9, 12, 9 through 13, this is the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let love be authentic. That is the word of the Lord for this great Sunday. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Would you please have a seat? So let's ask the question, what is a mark of a gospel family? What are the marks? And second, how do we become that family? So if you're taking notes, first, this is the first mark. The gospel family does not hold auditions. 
Gospel families do not hold auditions. Verse 9, let, us, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Now here, brotherly affection is the Greek word that you probably know. It's the word Philadelphia. That's where we get, you know, Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Right, this is where we get it, right? It's a Greek word, phileo, which means brotherly love. But there's another word here. It says, love one another with uh, phileo love. But that first love is the love storge. That's another Greek word, which means automatic love that is shared between brothers and sisters. In fact, C.S. Lewis, in his great book, the great classic, Four Loves, he talks about four Greek love concepts that is in the Bible. First, it's the idea of agape, which is the sacrificial love, the way God loves us. Secondly, is eros, which is the romantic love that you love your spouse, your girlfriends, and boyfriends. Third, it, it is the Philadelphia love. It is a brotherly love. And storge love is the automatic love of a mother to a father to a brother and a sister. And what C.S. Lewis contends for is that storge love has its unique glory. It's different from all others because it has zero merit. It actually has automatic nature to how you love each other. For instance, like, um, you know, sacrificial love, the agape love, you give merit to God because he loves so radically. Or even Eros love, romantic love, we give merit to the person that actually is drawing this kind of, you know, romantic love because they look like this or they have this personality, whatever. But storge love is the kind of love that is like determined for you. Because, you know, brothers and sisters, you don't get to choose who your brother or sister are. Now, wouldn't it be fun to have and play this game among your brothers and sisters to say, if I could choose a brother, I would not choose you. That'd be fun, right? I mean, in fact, in some reality, that's true, right? You would, you would never choose to have your siblings as who they are. And yet, because they were given to you, you still love them and you're in, in radical commitment to each other and you love them deeply and dearly and this storge love here is what we find in the Bible as Paul would say, love one another. It's like within the body of Christ, we are to love each other as brothers and sisters and anybody could come in. We don't audition people. We don't have our ushers up front and once you walk in, they scan you up and down like, you're in. And it's for others like, yo, not today, Junior. We don't say that. We let everybody in. Why? Because we don't audition one another. Why? Because God has not auditioned us. You're not here because you're worthy. You're not here because you're noble. You're not here because you're uh, acts of righteousness. You are welcome here. You are absolutely welcome here. And this is why C.S. Lewis puts it so beautifully. He says, we think we've chosen our friends, but in reality, a few years of difference and dates of our birth few more miles, a choice of one school rather than another, any of these chances might have kept friends apart. But for Christians, there's strictly no speaking of chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work in your life. Christ, who said to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. And at this feast, 
It is he who has spread the board, and it is he who has chosen the guest list. Isn't that so true? That God has created this table, and the reality is whoever you're sitting with today, whoever's in this room and in Hayward and your family, they are here because God had assembled. God had uniquely, from beginning of time, knew that we were going to be born in this generation for a cause such as this. You and I are Resonate Church. Why? Because God called you here. You are not here by accident. Even if this is your very first time being here, you're not here by accident. You think you woke up and said, oh, you know what? I think I'm going to go to church. Oh, no, years and years and years from birth, God knew that this day would come. And you are here for a reason. God called you. God placed a seat next to us on our table. And so we are assembled together for the glory of God, strictly by the will of God. Amen? Amen. This is the reality. And that means you are welcome here. Anybody's welcome here. If you're here, you are welcome at our table. No auditions. But here's the second one. The gospel depth does not enable sin. See, remember, the culture chooses superficiality over depth. Look at what verse 9 says. Let love be genuine. It says, okay, here's how you make love genuine. Ready? Abhor what is evil. Did you catch that? So you want genuine love? We must hate evil. So not only does the gospel community receive people, a gospel community also shapes people. We don't leave you alone. In a sense, we say, well, you, everybody's welcome anytime, right? Come as you are, but don't stay as you are. We would love for you to change and be transformed by the grace of God and through one another mutual relationship and challenge, right? And so we create environments that are safe for people to come and be honest with who they are, but those environments are warm and welcoming to ongoing unrepentant sin, see? Because that's not real love. And when we say that gospel community doesn't enable sin, there's a personal responsibility to fight our personal sin, but there's also a communal responsibility to help us fight our sin. Do you know why? Because there's this thing called, in all of our lives, called the blind spot. You know what the blind spot is? It's a spot that you can't see on your own. That's why it's blind to you. But guess what? It's not blind to everybody else. In fact, you don't know your blind spots, but guess who does? All of us. We all know your blind spot. Everybody knows my blind spots. I can't see it in myself. Sometimes I'll walk around and um, they will say, hey, Ryan, you have that face again. I'm like, what's that face? They're like, oh, you know. That some call it RBF and others call it just your working face. You know, I'm like, oh, okay. You know, like I just have to be aware because sometimes when I am not sure of, I'm not even aware that I have this kind of intense face. I'm like, bro, you're intense. No, I'm not. No, you're intense. No, no, I'm not, you know. (laughs) We don't know our blind spots, right? And yet, if we don't tell each other our blind spots, those are kind of the weak, most feeble love that we could experience, right? Those, the most weak and pathetic form of love is a type of love that sees a loved one in danger and we don't do anything about it. That's, that's, that's not love at all. And sin is great danger. Uh, so consider 
like I, I live on a street where it's, it's on the elbow. It's literally, it's like a, it's a turn. And I live in the inside of that elbow, which means there's a crazy blind spot. And people just drive really fast right around this area. And it's just really dangerous for my kids to play in the front yard. And the days when my kids did on the driveway, I used to always be nervous. Because they would chase after balls and they would run right out into the street. If a car came, they would not have the time. Nor Because it's a blind spot, they would just roll through and not see my kids. So it was radically dangerous. And so when, when I saw my kids playing there, I never thought to myself, ah, oh, you know what? Um, this will probably go bad, you know, but there's a minute chance that it won't. And so I'll just go back watching my football and just like go back. No, I would not do that. Why? Because, you know, I love my kids and I want them to live. So you know what I do instead? I grab their hair and show them this road, you know, pizza and say, hey, yo, listen, you know what that is? That's road pizza. That used to be a squirrel. Do you want to be like this? I mean, I'll pay for counseling later. Right? But at least they're alive. Right? I I, I don't want them to play on the street because... That would destroy them. And in some sense, we, we, we do the same among our relationships. We just coddle other people's sin and we think it's not dangerous. And yet, because we don't point out each other's blind spots, we don't say, hey, I don't want you to be road pizza in your heart. And so I want you to grow. I want you to... Now, this is the important part. In the same way, we can't be passive about something that is devastating as sin and pursue shallow love without any depth. But, but here's the question, like how are we to call each other to sin? We shouldn't be all like sin police. That'd be awful, right? Like let us just talk about all the ways that you're missing the mark. No, that's not what God has called us to. He's calling us to love. So how should we do it? Galatians 6 shows us. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore. Say restore. restore. Yes, restore him in a spirit, spirit of gentleness. You're to do it gentle. Keep watch of yourself lest you be tempted. So, so it says restore the person. You know this Greek word restore is to actually put back into socket what has been dislocated. That's what it means. That's the Greek word. That's the Greek imagery. You know, when I was in college, I used to be a kinesiology major, which is sports medicine. And I often, I I got into it because I I loved helping people, especially with sports injuries. And one particular baseball friend that I had, he had a shoulder that constantly would pop out. And when it popped out, he'd be in great agony. He would pursue me because I was the most gentle among all of the friends who would help him put it back into the socket. And what I would do, he's like, right, come, come help me, come help me. So I would get my um, right hand on his elbow and my left hand on his shoulders, and I would just pop it back. And when he did that, he would shout, ah, in pain. And all of a sudden, he would say, ah, thank you. And in some sense, the only way you're going to get out of the pain of dislocation is you must have to go through the pain of relocation. And addressing somebody in sin is like the pain of relocation so that your soul could say, ah, okay, I'm finally back in place. And that's the hope. That's what we're called to, but do it in gentleness. So if you're lonely, you might be so scared that people are going to judge you, you know? But at the cost of that fear, what you're doing is you're running 
and you don't feel known at all. You could never feel like you could be vulnerable to somebody else because you'll lose all the person's respect, right? And the gospel family says, hey, come as you are. Don't stay as you are, but we're going to fight superficiality. All are welcome. We're not going to audition anybody, and yet we're not going to leave you alone. We're going to love you genuinely. That's the spirit of God, and that's the hope of God for his church. Third, gospel charity meets needs. It meets needs. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What this means is we're carrying burdens to meet needs of the saints, right? And if you see a guy carrying a 100-pound bag and they need reprieve and they can't go on, what do you do? You don't just cheer for them saying, you could do it, you could do it. After a while, they can't do it. And so what you need to do if you're going to bear their burden is you're going to have to come alongside close enough, close enough where their weight that they're bearing falls onto you a little bit. So if it falls 30%, then you're carrying 30 pounds and they're carrying only 70 or 50-50, or sometimes you carry 80 and them 20 so that you can reprieve. How do you, how do you actually bear emotional uh, burdens? This is how it goes. Your friend is crying, and they're distraught, and they're feeling really alone. So they're like, could, could you come and talk to me? And so you drive over their house, and you talk and talk. Listen, they're crying, you're crying, and you hold them, and you listen to them. You see, as, as they are feeling better, you are feeling heavier. See, you're bearing their burdens. You know what feels heavy? The next day when they're still crying. And you're like, man, I just want to binge watch Netflix. I don't want to do anything else. But you know what? You go over anyway, and it costs you. And yet you listen to them. And the moment that you continue to listen and care for them, they are feeling strengthened while at the same time you are feeling weaker. See, that is bearing burdens. And when bearing burdens, you know what happens? There is a cost. There's always a cost. We love bearing burdens when there is no cost. No, real burdens, there's a cost. And we must bear the cost. And you should be exhausted. But in your exhaustion, guess who's less exhausted? The other person. That's what it looks like. Well, how about financial burdens? You know, Jonathan Edwards once called out his church to bear financial burdens with each other. And he would say, he would say that, that you should help. And people would say, but I can't afford to. I can't afford to. And Jonathan Edwards replied this. He said, in many cases, we may by the rules of the gospel be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. How else would you bear one another's burdens if we're never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we could do it without burdening ourselves? How do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we don't bear no burdens at all? See what he's saying? When you say, man, I would love to help, but I can't afford it, what you really mean is, I can't help them without burdening myself. That's what you're saying. I can't help without costing me. And Jonathan Edwards saying, that's exactly what it looks like to bear burdens. If you are contributing to the need, it must burden you. When you say, I can't afford to help, what you really mean is, I can't afford to help without suffering myself. See, and that's why the Bible says in verse 10 here, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in this and be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord because when you're serving these people, you're serving me is what the Lord says. In Romans 15 verse 1, he says, we who are strong have the obligation, not just a privilege, but the obligation to bear witness to the failings 
of the weak and not to please ourselves. See, if you are not helping others, you're just pleasing yourself. And God says, no. Romans 15, this is the calling. We are to help each other. Let me give you a practical application of this. This is a marvelous application for all of us in Hayward, here in Fremont, and our online families. Today, we have a website that is attached to ours. If you look at it, we're going to give you a QR code to check it out. It's an opportunity for us to come, on, come along and help all of our Afghani refugees and Afghani families that live in our city. And we're going to do a backpack drive. 350 backpacks we want to purchase, assemble, and put in these backpacks, notebooks and papers and um, erasers and pencils and all these things. Why? Because we have a community of people who are in need and they're crying out for help. And the very first people that should come to the rescue, not just giving out of charity, but giving out of our burden, out of our sacrifice to say, 350 backpacks, that's it? Let's go. That's our attitude. That should be our attitude. Listen, this service alone in this room, we could cover uh, 350 backpacks in an instant. And so what I pray out of this, and Hayward is going to fight for it too, online family is going to fight for it too, is out there today, you're going to have an opportunity to support and sponsor a, a, a backpack. And on August 4th, we're going to come together as a church family to assemble them. Whatever you can do, because it costs you, I pray that you would actually go and do the work that God is calling us to, to be a refuge to these Afghani families. Amen? I hope you could do that wherever you are. Secondly, here's a second challenge that I want to give you. In two weeks, we have our VBS. And most of us know the gospel because we heard it when we were children. And you know what that means? The generation before us did not drop the baton, decided to continue to pass off the baton of the gospel to us. And we should say, we will not ever drop the baton to the next generation because it's been passed to us. So we must do the faithful work to make sure that the torch is carried to the next generation. And what that means for us is that there are a few more items that needs to be picked up in Hayward and in Fremont to bless and to support us having the gospel go out in our city for the kids to hear the gospel. So whether it be a gift card of 25 bucks to Lowe's or whatever it is, they're asking for a box of donuts or a hundred, whatever, we should go out there first and grab some of these needs so that these children will come to a place where they will hear the name of Jesus Christ, that he is their savior. Amen? Amen. Yeah. All right, 14 people. Awesome. I'll see you there. <laughs> Seriously, you guys need to wake up. I'm serious. Like, this is, the gospel has been passed down to you. What are we doing? Just Ridiculous. So stop thinking about yourself. That's how you're lonely. Think about others. Center yourself on others. Free yourself from loneliness. So lastly, how do we become a gospel family? How do we become a gospel family? Let me give you three real quick things. Number one, remind one another of family values. This is the family value written in verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. There are three things there. And you know, you have in your family, like you have a wall, like you have like this frame thing of your family values, your 10 things. And of course you have, do not lie. You know, you have stuff like that in your family. Well, it says rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. Let's go over each one real quick. Rejoice in hope. 
What is hope? The biblical definition of hope is so much stronger than the modern definition of hope because the modern definition of hope is like, I hope a predicament of my preference will happen. I hope so. Like, you know, we say, wait, are the Warriors going to win the division this year? And you're like, yes, I hope so. We still have Draymond now. I think we could do it. I think we could do it, right? I hope so. And is it a sure thing? No, absolutely not, but I hope so. And so we prefer that this will happen, but the biblical definition is not one of this false hope. It is one of certain hope that we absolutely believe it will come. It has not come yet. And this is why we know that Jesus is coming back. And this is why we will live forever. And this is why we can live radically here today. And because we have this hope, when we sing of Jesus' return, we continue to sing, we continue to clap our hands, we continue to say hallelujah, and we do these things because we rejoice in this hope that is certain, not uncertain. Amen? Yes. Secondly, we must be patient in tribulation. And when other people go through rough patches, and we all do, will you stop, stop doing this stuff where you come and say, there, there, it's going to get better. Like, that's such a worldly thought. The question is, like, how do you know it's going to get better? Are you God? Like, you, you can't determine that. But here's what you could determine. You could point them to the person that is actually in control. And you could say, listen, I know you're in pain, but you know what? Jesus, he's omnipresent, which means he's with you in your tribulation. He's like, he's omniscient. He knows all things, which means he knows every single one of your needs. And he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful in that he has something that he could do with it. And let's trust him because we see all those attributes coming on the cross. We would have never thought that cross was a good thing until it happened. And now we know that God has used his omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence to make sure that we are loved. So when we look at the cross, we can never question his love for our lives. So point people to the cross. That's how you could be patient in your tribulation. Lastly, be constant in prayer. You know, um, this means God never feels burdened when you come crying to him. You know that? That's an incredible thing. Because you know what? When I had young ones, you know, when my kids were really young and they used to wake me up in the middle of the night, I felt so burdened, uh, not for them, but for me. I'm like, I need my sleep. I used to feel so selfish, and I'm like, oh, why are they crying? But you know what a good mother does? When they cry, they're four years old, and they had a bad dream, they're like crying, mommy, mommy. What? You know what happens? You know, they're like an alarm that will not shut off, and they'll continue to cry until mommy shows up, and when mommy shows up, she says, what's wrong, honey? He's like, I had a bad dream. The boogeyman came for me, and you know, it's your fault because you fed me this, and I want this, and sing this song for me, and they have all these demands, and they're blaming you. What does a good mother do? A good mother doesn't say, you little twerp. How dare you blame me for something that I didn't do? You know what? Grow up. Know that there's no such thing as a boogeyman go to sleep. Moms don't do that. Good moms take the blame and receive the child and sing a lullaby and read to them and pray over them, right? In Mark chapter 4, Jesus had a bunch of babies crying in a boat. (laughs) Grown hairy men, (laughs) you know, looking at Jesus. Wake up, Jesus, we're about to die. You know, like the water's coming up. 
into our ship, you know. Help us. Do you not care? Remember he was being accused. What's so amazing is they believed that Jesus could do something about it, but they had such little faith, so much that they thought Jesus was going to let him die. And so Jesus wakes up and he says, you know, oh, ye of little faith, such kind of faith. And what does he do? In the sovereignty, because his name is above all names, even the winds and the seas know his name, he calms the storm, right? What's amazing about that story of that narrative is the disciples offered such little faith and yet God answered them still. Imagine if you and I offered a little more faith than a little faith. How much more will God answer us? Be constant in prayer. Be fervent in prayer. Go to him. He's not inconvenienced. He'll never say, oh my gosh, it's four o'clock. I was sleeping. He'll never say that to us. He always welcomes us. So be constant in prayer. Number two, remind each other of our family commitment. And could I just, you know... Those are family values. This is a family commitment that I saw once and I thought it was so good that I just wanted to teach you and share it with you. Rebecca McLaughlin once posted an Instagram post a few years back and I, I took a picture of it because it had a profound impact on me. She says her husband and she has three rules of engagement when they go to the church. It's a way of living out their mission to the church, their family commitment that fights loneliness. And here are the three things, ready? Number one, she says, and the lone person in the church Gathering is an emergency. You know, which means that when you see a, lone, a person alone, that's an emergency. They're not lost. They don't want to be. No, it's an emergency. And so she's like, I'm going to go talk to them. Man, I would love if Resonate Church, even though we're really good with fellowship already, that we would be even greater by making a commitment to say, you know what, this is a commitment. And when I see a alone person, I'm not going to let them be alone for a long time. I'm going to go. And secondly, friends could wait. Friends could really wait. And listen, you know, when you're in a, small, in a small church, you have lots of clicks. When you're in a big church like ours, you have lots of clicks. You know, you just look for your family. You look for your Friends, that's all you do. Can I encourage you today, look for the person that's alone and meet somebody that's new that you don't know the names of and say, hey, my name is, how long have you been coming to Resonate? Just simply ask them that. And third, introduce a newcomer to someone else. Man, if you do this, honestly, relationships will open up and we will be one of those churches where we would say, man, we, we abolish loneliness because the way Christ has loved us and now we want to love other people. That'd be marvelous. I want to go to a church like that. Do you? I hope you do. Number three, remind each other of our family status. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. These are two words, saints and hospitality. Those are two very important words because this is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He made on the cross you and I a saint. You realize that? You know, you and I are no saints. You know our history. You know our attitude. You know our sins. But what Jesus did is though he was the only saint in the face of the universe, he died on the cross. So on the cross, uh, he was treated as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe even though he didn't commit a single sin. And so God treated him as if he had lived your life. So now God treats us as if we had lived Jesus' saint life. And this is why you and I, being saints, having the status of saints, will live forever and ever and ever together. 
and that's a marvelous truth. But secondly, not only sainthood does he give, but he also gives us hospitality. You know that on the cross, Jesus demonstrated incredible hospitality. You know one of the last things that Jesus said on the cross? He looks at his mother. Do you remember this? He looks at his mother and says, Mother, woman, behold your son, looking at John. And he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that day on, John took Mary into her home. Now, I don't think you know the significance of that. You know what the significance is? Back then, an elderly woman who lost her son, if her sons don't take care of her, she's gone. Because where would she go? There's no social services. There's no, like, nursing homes. Families were committed to families. And so they didn't have families, and their children are deceased, and they have nobody to take care of them in their elderly state. But what's interesting in the Bible, you see in John chapter 7, that Jesus actually had biological brothers. But you see, Jesus didn't command Mary to go back to his biological brothers. Do you know why? Because those biological brothers weren't believers. They weren't believers. So he looks at John, the disciple, and says, hey, I want to introduce you to your new mom. And to mom, I want you to introduce you to your new son. And they go home together. And John, for the rest of his life, rest of Mary's life, takes care of her. And here's what Jesus is saying. I know your biological blood with your family is really thick, but you know what's thicker? He's saying, my blood. My blood. And if you're a believer and I made you into a saint, then every person in this room who's a believer of Jesus Christ, you are all fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters of one another. And my blood is thicker than even earthly blood. And because of my blood, you and I are brothers and sisters forever and ever. And what he's saying is on the cross, I revolutionize all relationships once and for all. All relationships. And this is the kind of hospitality I offer you. You see, you realize in this room what we'll do together for billions of years from now is that we'll continue to do what we get to do even now. Five billion years from now, we'll know each other. Five billion years from now, we'll get to celebrate and enjoy Jesus' presence together. And if you're like, ew, (laughs) I I don't love, well then get used to it. (laughs) Because Jesus chose you. He didn't have an audition for you. He didn't have an audition for the person sitting next to you. So he receives all of us. And so this is what Charles Spurgeon says. I love it. He says, the interaction of saints on earth should be a rehearsal of their everlasting communion in heaven. This should be a rehearsal for what we get to do for the rest of eternity. Let's love each other. Let's be a radical community that blows away the world so that when the world looks at us, they say, man, I don't agree with a lot of things that they believe, but man, I wish I had their community. Let's pray. Oh, Christ, thank you for not auditioning us. We come as broken people and you receive us. But thank you that you don't leave us alone because the Holy Spirit changes us within and you use our community, our brothers and sisters, to shape us, encourage us, to point us to a better place. Father, help us to not be complacent in the calling that you give. Help us to fight loneliness. There's so many of us that have convinced ourselves that it's okay to be lonely, but it's not your design. So I pray that the Church of Christ would 
radically demonstrate this kind of love towards one another, that every single person could feel like we are literally brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ and to one another because you are so, so good to us. We love you, and I pray that you will mobilize us to be a kind of community, a kind of family that the world will look and say, man, I wish I had some of that. And the realities they can and that they would also fold into this beautiful community because there is no audition. There's no audition for them because there was no audition for us. Thank you for receiving us. And we love you. We commit to you now. We worship you now because Christ on the cross, you did everything to make us into this beautiful family. So we love you. In Christ's name, we all pray. All God's people said, amen. Let's give him glory today. Hallelujah. Amen.